I would encourage you to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 13. We're continuing in Matthew's gospel. We've come now to the end of uh, chapter 13 after a set of parables that Jesus has uh, provided. And as we turn here to this particular uh, section and episode in Matthew's gospel, uh, we're really confronted with uh, the churches and the Christians, one of the church's greatest challenges. And at the same time, one of the church's greatest opportunities. Uh, In fact, this challenge serves at the same time as one of our great obstacles and great blessings. And that is the matter of familiarity. Familiarity. A familiar person, place, uh, song. Most importantly, the very familiar things of God uh, to many of us, like the Word of God and prayer and the sacraments and fellowship can either be a source of deep comfort and uh, awe, or they can drive a person to contempt, uh, complacency, frustration. And the rudder that's going to lead a person to either worship and blessing of these familiar things or contempt and rejection is that of belief or unbelief. And that's what we see in the text uh, before us here in Jesus' return to his hometown. So Matthew 13, we'll see this unfold, verses 53 to 58. Listen now to God's word. And when Jesus had finished these parables through this chapter, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished. And they said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Well, there's a certain tension in this uh, text. You may have uh, caught it. There's something really difficult to grasp and therefore difficult to really explain adequately, and it's this. How can the same people uh, be astonished by what Jesus has said and by his, his, his many works and his mighty works, and at the same time, these same people fail to believe in him. They're astonished, but they do not believe. And we're told in verse 54, these people are astonished at the wisdom and the works of Christ. And then at the end, in verse 58, these same people reject him. They're filled with unbelief, and that's how the text ends. How is that? Why is that? Well, in part, it's how the human heart responds to that which is familiar. They are astonished, but familiarity in this text will lead people to one of two places. Excuse or contempt or complacency on the one hand, or worship. I remember when our uh, friends from Uganda were visiting us, I think perhaps in in the Midwest at the time, and they were describing uh, for 
for the first time, they were describing when they first saw snow falling to the ground with their own eyes. And even in their description of it, you could sense uh, their awe and their kind of amazement at it. But for those of us who live in snow country, like New England, that all too familiar sight of falling snow can trigger one thought, shoveling, right? Work, labor. Uh, Familiarity can have that kind of effect. Uh, This time of year is a perfect example, perhaps the prime example, Christmas time, one of the clearest examples of how familiarity can breed contempt. Uh, What was once clearly understood uh, as the celebration of Christ's birth, the wonder of the incarnation, God taking on human flesh in the person of Christ, that wonder then ultimately became something tolerated. Christmas is now kind of tolerated in our culture. And then from toleration, even perhaps we could say to contempt. Uh, some, Some people cannot even say the words Merry Christmas, right? without even taking some kind of offense. Familiarity can breed contempt. And so as we look at this context of Jesus returning to his hometown of Nazareth, we're looking at this, how unbelief, that's at the heart of the passage, it's how the passage ends, how unbelief will use familiarity to turn something astonishing into contempt, into rejection. How unbelief will use familiarity to turn something astonishing into contempt or rejection. We are told that after Jesus was finished teaching the parables, he returned to his hometown. Matthew does not tell us his hometown, but in the other accounts, if you put your finger at Luke 4, it'll be worth having it there. Luke's account of this story, we're told indeed his hometown is Nazareth. And most of us probably already knew this. Born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. Matthew had told us that earlier in the gospel, chapter 2. Chapter 2, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Nazareth was a small and humble town. Uh, Population was estimated in Jesus' day at around 500 people. Now, if you've lived in a small town before of that kind of size or grown up in that uh, kind of town, We lived in a town of 650 people for about five years. But in a a town that size, people know one another's business. People get into one another's business. Uh, So there is a strong sense of familiarity. The people of Nazareth, they would have seen Jesus up close and personal for a long time, for many years. The families in the town would have grown up along with the members of Jesus' earthly family. The children would have played with Jesus and the other children of Joseph and Mary. They would have known him as the carpenter's son, just as Matthew records here. In Mark's account, which is another place worth putting your finger at, Mark chapter 6, there we're told that indeed he himself is a carpenter. The people in town would have known the things that his father, his earthly father, and he himself had made. In addition, it's very likely that when Jesus began his public ministry around Galilee, which Nazareth is just southwest in the region of Galilee, uh, the word is spreading about him. In fact, in Luke chapter 4, just prior to his return home, 
in Luke's account, it says that he returned in the power of the Spirit and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Jesus' reputation, it's spreading. And when he returns to his hometown, to those familiar with him, he returns and he stands in the synagogue and he begins to teach. And what happens? They are astonished in verse 54. They're wondering, where did he get this wisdom and these mighty works? And they took offense at him. Literally, it means they refused to believe in him. And so what do they do? They're asking question after question. Isn't this so-and-so? Aren't these his siblings? They're trying to reconcile what they are experiencing, what they're seeing, with the facts that they've had in their mind. What rationally makes sense to them. Have you ever been faced with that challenge? A difficulty of reconciling what you are experiencing with, with reasonably what you've understood things to be. Well, at a certain level, I think this is understandable because Luke tells us in chapter 4 that this is the very occasion which we heard read earlier in the Scripture reading where Jesus stood up in the synagogue, was handed the scroll of Isaiah, and we're specifically told he found the place in the scroll of Isaiah where it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me. To proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, sight to the blind. And then he said and concluded, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus is not only teaching the scriptures, but he is claiming to fulfill the scriptures. He's making quite a claim. We could say in a way he's shaking the expectations of Uh, the townspeople. He doesn't fit. He's not fitting the box that they have for him. And uh, his claims and his words are so disturbing their worldview that at the end of the episode in Luke's account, chapter 4, verse 29, it says the people rose up, drove him out of town, brought him to to the brow of the hill that they might throw him down the cliff. And I love what it says in Luke's account at the end. It says, but passing through their midst, he went away. Literally, they cannot capture him. Physically, but we could even say spiritually, they are struggling to fit him. How is he saying these things? Where is this coming from? And I think, friends, there's an important application for us as Christians, because the world, and sometimes those closest to us, have certain expectations of you and I, and of the church. There is a box, there is a container with a shape that you are expected to fit in. The world has a box for us. And part of that box is de- defined by the fact that the world says you can have your personal beliefs, you can have a worldview, but the world expects you to keep it private. If you are living privately as a Christian and no one else knows, that's exactly what the world is expecting from you and me. It does not belong in the public square or in the workplace or in government or in education. And you can have faith claims, but the world expects that they not be exclusive claims. 
The world says all ideas have equal validity. That's what it expects from you and me. And sometimes those expectations come from those closest to us. A Christian may be living amidst a family, an immediate family filled with non-believers. And that expectation is that matters of the Christian faith are not to be discussed. That's an expectation. Or you may be surrounded by Christians in the church or in an immediate family or extended family, but the expectation is that relationships are to remain at a distance. The point is, expectations can be very powerful. Jesus, in this story, is pressing those expectations. He's not fitting the mold. And of course, there's a cost to this. Among his own townspeople, the the cost is rejection. But eventually, the cost leads Jesus where? To the cross. His words... His works, his claims are too much of a threat to those around him. And yet that's not just true of Jesus. That's true of many of the saints that we admire throughout church history. It was true of many of the reformers. Many of the Protestant reformers. reformers. The world around them, even the church, had an expectation and they pressed it and they felt the cost. If you go to Geneva, Switzerland, uh, today there at the University of Geneva, I'm sure it's been mentioned before, if you've been there or seen pictures, is the Reformation Wall, the well-known Reformation Wall. Four statues of Protestant reformers, William Farrell, uh, predecessor to, uh, John, uh, to uh, John Calvin in Geneva, then you have John Calvin, then Theodore Beza is next, successor to Calvin, and then John Knox. Four reformers, and they're kind of massive. They they stand, I think, about 15 feet tall. But saints like these, who have been used to radically shape history, have statues made of them after they're gone, not while they're living. There's a reason. People like them after they're out of the world. A long way after I think those statues were made three to four hundred years. I think it was the 400th anniversary of Calvin's birth that those were made. John Calvin did not wake up in Geneva when he was ministering and walk past a statue of himself, admired by the people on his way to St. Pierre's where he worked and labored and taught. No, his ministry in Geneva was filled with heartaches, headaches, and disputes, even rejection and exile eventually, removed by the city altogether. Calvin in stone and statue is easily admired at a distance, but up close and personal. Familiarity can breed contempt. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon... Where's his credentials, his degrees, his advanced education, his proven track record? And they took offense at him. J.C. Ryle uh, says that we are all apt to despise mercies if we are accustomed to them and have them cheap. 
The means of grace, the gospel of Christ, are liable to be undervalued. It's mournfully true that in religion, more than anything else, familiarity breeds contempt. And the story of our Lord's rejection here by those closest to him is supposed to surprise us. As the Apostle John in John 1 said, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And so he moved on. That's the power of familiarity if it is fueled by unbelief. An unbelieving heart, a calloused heart, will use familiarity to turn something astonishing into complacency or indifference or contempt. So the astonishing gift of having access to the Word of God, the gift of corporate worship being counted among the number of the people of God, the gift of fellowship with God in prayer, these kinds of gifts, if fueled at all by, by unbelief, become points of complacency or indifference, even contempt. We're told that behind this offense and contempt that the people expressed is what? Unbelief. It specifically tells us this. Verse 58, He did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. We who subscribe to the Reformed tradition, among other things, with a strong emphasis, rightly so, appropriately so, uh, upon God's sovereign will, might be uncomfortable with this kind of language. Perhaps we should be uncomfortable with this kind of language, because it does not say, he did not do many mighty works there because of the sovereign will of God. That's true. But it says it was because of their unbelief. In fact, Mark's account has even stronger language in Mark 6. And he could do no mighty works there. And then it says Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. John Calvin says Christ's own townsfolk, by their ungodliness, prevented him from performing more mighty works among them. For when the Lord sees that his power is not received by us, he finally takes it away. Those are some scary words. When the Lord sees that his power is not received by us, he finally takes it away. Calvin says, by saying that Christ was not able, their guilt is magnified who hindered his goodness. Calvin has no problem using the language of our hindering Christ's goodness and preventing his mighty work. And as I mentioned, Mark notes that when Jesus saw their unbelief, he marveled. I think I read that there's only two places in the Gospels where we read of Jesus marveling. One is at the faith of the centurion back in Matthew chapter 8, and the second is here at the unbelief of his own town's people. Marveled at their unbelief. We often hear about the power of belief, of faith. Um, if you have his little faith as a mustard seed, Jesus says, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it'll be thrown into the sea. Faith moves mountains. But here we see the power of unbelief. And perhaps we should be challenged by this. Throughout the scriptures, uh, unbelief has tremendous influence, it seems. 
Adam and Eve exercised unbelief in God's Word. They brought the whole human race into a curse. In the days of Noah, the world would not believe. It resulted in this great flood. It was unbelief on Israel's part that caused a whole generation to die before entering the promised land. And we could go on to individual levels. Aaron, in his sin, the making of the golden calf led to the death of 3,000. Achan's unbelief in Joshua 7, where he kept back some of the devoted things in the promised land, led to his death and the death of his family. There is great power in unbelief. And we should notice here that Jesus' teaching and miracles don't automatically produce faith. At least the kind of faith that's pleasing to God. The text leaves us on this somewhat negative point, how unbelief turned astonishment into contempt. But what about us? What about us? Are we exercising the kind of belief or faith that is pleasing unto God? Where we are not only familiar with the name of the Lord Jesus or familiar with the Scriptures or familiar with the hymns and carols that we sing during this time, but we are welcoming and desiring to see the Lord Jesus Christ working and ministering by His Spirit in our lives. What kind of belief or faith is needed? These people had unbelief, it says. I remember years ago at a Presbytery meeting, uh, an individual was being examined for his ordination. And uh, the floor was opened up for questions, and one presbyter, one elder, asked this candidate the question, what is the nature of faith? And you could see his mind turning. What is the answer to this question? What's the nature of faith? Some of you have looks right now. What, what are we talking about? Well, I was thinking, too, which happens when you're sitting, uh, sitting there and thinking, how would I answer that question? I was thinking, well, what's the answer in the catechism? What is faith? Well, that's the definition. It says faith is a saving grace whereby we receive and we rest upon Christ alone for our salvation. That's the definition, but what's the nature of faith? Well, for one, faith has an object. You're trusting in something or someone. Everyone is. That's part of the nature of faith. It has an object. And it's one thing to give assent to something, to, to know and agree that something is true. Remember the Apostle James, he said, You believe that God is one, good, even the demons believe that. And so it's one thing to believe by agreement that something is true. And there's, we could say, much of that kind of faith that exists. But the Scriptures, and certainly the Reformers, distinguished assent, agreement with something, with personal trust. That, that fiducia is what they would call it. Personal reliance and dependence on the Lord. It's the kind of trust and faith that we read of in Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Here Jesus comes into Nazareth. Just like He came into the world, that people would not only hear Him, and not only be astonished by Him, but trust 
trust Him as Lord and Savior of their lives. And this is what we sing at this time of year, Christmas time. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare Him room. Many are the gifts that God gives to us that, that can become very familiar to us. Particular relationships within the body of Christ, a marriage relationship, the Scriptures, prayer, worship, service unto our Lord. Might biblical trust and faith fuel, fuel these things that they would be avenues of, of true worship of our, of our living God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your grace that pierces our hearts, Lord, that, that even when we express at times unbelief, when we choose sin rather than trusting in you, yet, Lord, we thank you that your grace and your power pierces our hearts, that we might indeed believe, that we might indeed trust in you with all of our heart. We pray, O oh Lord, that your Spirit would work mightily in us. That the things that we know to be familiar, the many gifts that you give to us, that we would cherish because they're fueled by trust in you. So enliven our hearts, Lord, that this might be the case for us. Lord, we repent and we recognize that your grace is sufficient. And we pray that you give us joy, Lord, in your presence and in your gifts to us, at the center of which is the very gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, as you do that work in us, we will, as your people, respond with worship and adoration of who you are. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.